Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today is the third episode of our mentorship series where we help one of our listeners workshop their pilot from inception to final draft. And we're joined once again by Paul. Welcome. Hey guys, how's it going? It's going great. Good. Thanks for being here. And uh, this week, we're taking a look at the outline of Paul's comedy pilot, Mid-Death Crisis, which you can read at paperteam.co slash 138. So let's get started. And just to recap quickly with our mentorship, the goal is having this monthly workshop to help a writer create a new original TV pilot script from the very beginnings of the idea all the way through to the finished product. And you can check some of the previous episodes out that we've done on this. The first one was PT-128, where we went through a basic overview and kind of brainstorm of ideas. And then PT-134, where we did the story beat sheet. And now we are moving on to the outline. That's right. And you can also hear Paul's thoughts and updates throughout every step of that process on our Patreon exclusive series at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And a couple of weeks ago, I actually talked with Paul while he was in Chicago about some of the changes he was thinking of making at the time and which software he uses to write. Uh, <laughs> top, top 10 most shocking things. As always, we want this process to be as interactive as possible with everyone listening to us. So you can follow at home, whether it's with your running group or in our Facebook group uh, at paperteam.co slash group. And we've been using the episode threads on the group as sort of the hub for people exchanges, which some people sadly have not really used for their benefit. But whenever this episode drops, you can share and get feedback on people's outlines within the episode thread at paperteam.co slash group to join the fun. Since our last episode, we did have a couple of emails and a little bit of feedback about the entire mentorship process and mid-death crisis. One email we had was from Damien, a fellow Australian, and I'll read a little excerpt of his email now. I've only recently discovered your show through Reddit via a link you posted regarding the writing program interviews that you did with the major studios. I really enjoyed them. Even if I'm not eligible for them, they were still super helpful. One thing I'm absolutely loving is the mentorship episodes for Mid-Death Crisis. I love the overall concept and the characters in it. I was raised in a born-again Christian household, but have since become an atheist, so the mythology side really resonates with me. And I've also spent my entire adult life working in the corporate world, first telecommunications and now finance, so I relate heavily to that aspect of the show as well. What do you think, Paul? Are you happy that you're show has resonated with some of our audience oh absolutely that's just really exciting and nice to hear that yeah you got your first fans all right <laughs> uh, and we did have another email from murray up in canada uh, commenting similar things how she enjoys the mentorship episode so thanks to both of you for sending in your thoughts and emails absolutely and you can always do that at ask at paperteam.co and actually you didn't read damien's email with an aussie accent you should have sort of emphasized that a little bit more <laughs> But uh, moving on to what we're talking about in this episode, which is the outline. And uh, uh, Paul, can you share with us sort of the, the differences and changes that you made from the beat sheet to the outline which we'll look at in a moment? Yeah, sure. So after our last recording, I kind of went back to the beat sheet and started to rework that based on some of the feedback you guys gave me before I started diving into the outline. So I went back and tried to figure out the act breaks. One of the things that going into the outline forced me to do is really figure out the specifics of the character, what was driving them, and also more about the world building mythology. So I feel like a lot of the big changes since we last spoke are around the character of Mo and some of the supporting characters as well, but also uh, sort of world building uh, mythology side. So one of the big changes I made was that I decided to remove Mo's ability to actually cause death by touching people. So before, just to remind, I had it where like being a reaper was this two-step process where, you know, Mo would 
touch someone and then they would be marked for death and then they would die within 24 hours. And then after that, you would have to go and pick them up again. So it was this two-step thing. And I, when I started to go back to the beach and, and eventually get into the outline, I found that it was just having that two-step process was complicating things a little bit because every time she interacts with someone, she has to go and interact with them twice. And I felt that ultimately for what I was trying to do with the story, it wasn't that essential. So what I did was I decided to like basically take away that power. So it, it just it's just simpler and smoother where basically she doesn't have the power to cause people's death. Rather, she uh, only has the power to pick them up, right? So it's, it's, and I think the analogy is also simpler where it maps more cleanly onto that Uber concept where, you know, she gets this pickup notification and then she goes and picks them up, drops them off, and that's that. And another reason why I decided to make that change was I think it works better for what I have in mind for Mo's character right now. So from the beginning, there's this idea that she was at the bottom of the organization of the underworld. Um, and there's a sort of corporate analogy there. And I felt that taking away her power to actually cause death and making made her more of like a, a pawn. You know, she has less agency. She kind of stripped away some of her power. And then I felt that that worked better for the story because then she starts off from a place of minimal power and can then go and claim that throughout the story. Whereas if she starts off at a place where she's already like kind of has power over like life and death decisions, I think it's more powerful. She starts off with less uh, causal power in the story. I keep right. saying the word power. but uh, And then the other big world building change that I made was... I d decided to get rid of the star rating system. I remember we kind of went back and forth a lot during, during the last the last session over that because it's pretty counterintuitive. You know, like this idea of like, why are the souls rating the Reapers? Like, what's the purpose of that? How does that work? And I had some kind of justifications for it. But ultimately, I felt that that was basically just to service a joke. Ultimately, like, it's just kind of funny to have have souls rate the reapers like at uber but ultimately it's not actually important to the story itself and so i thought it was like raising more questions uh, and causing more confusion than was really warranted by what's ultimately just like a little joke so i decided to cut that right and uh, without going too deep into the woods of the the outline i think both of those changes are really interesting just because it comes back to the same issue which is uh, are you actually going to actively use those ideas within the episode itself in the pilot are you going to deliver on that premise on that micro premise of whether it's the touch system or the rating system in an impactful way that is going to service the characters in the story so i think those are great changes overall yeah i definitely like how you kind of decluttered that and took out the unnecessary steps in between and i, I like what you're saying in terms of how that applies to mo and her level of agency i guess for me i would say the things to be careful of now having made these changes are one that mo doesn't become too passive because she no longer has these choices and she's just kind of going around picking up people and the second would be with the star rating that we still have a strong sense of the stakes because now we don't see people getting bad ratings and getting sent to hell so totally um just keep those two things in mind as you continue this process that you know you've taken these away and it is a good improvement but there will be certain elements that you want to make sure you're still hitting strongly absolutely and to that point let's get into the outline all right let's dig into the outline for mid-death crisis and since this is a more involved document unlike last time we will not be reading the outline on this episode but you can read it at paperteam.co slash 138 so let's go straight into our notes and discussion of the document and first of all what are some of the things that we really appreciate in the outline of mid-death crisis 
yeah, on a general level, I really liked the cold open and the way that you executed that. I thought that was really funny with the, uh, the, the character of the kind of frat boyish guy insisting that, you know, I can't die. My father's the head of this hedge fund or whatever. <laughs> so I thought that that was a good way to bring us into it. And I thought just on a scene by scene level, it was all pretty well executed. And I could see that, you know, in my head or on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely echo your sentiments in terms of the teaser and the humor I thought was really present. And overall, I mean, I think this is an episode and, and we'll, we'll uh, go into our notes about the structure and the accent in a second, but uh, I feel like it is worth mentioning that this is an episode. I, I think especially when you're moving from the stage of like an overview to sort of like a beat sheet that sort of simplify to an outline, sometimes you realize, oh, there's no real episode there, there's no meat. But I think now we can look at this outline and say, actually, there is content there. This is a full pilot. This is an episode. There's a world. There's a character's journey. Uh, there's all di these different elements, which may or may not need to be fleshed out even more. But overall, I think it's worth commending you for for having an episode of, uh, of TV, or at least an outline of it right now. Yeah, the, the pieces are all there, and sometimes it's it's not easy to get that right on the first try, so well done. Cool. Excellent. So let's dig into sort of the macro stuff of the pilot, and let's look at about the structure and the acts. So one of the things that we spoke about last time were the act breaks. I know that you spent some time sort of working on those, and also there were some, some changes in the story that required those to be different now. So... It, just for those who aren't familiar, the act one break is essentially uh, Mo showing up and seeing this motivational seminar and then hearing people yelling inside. And that's where the act ends. In act two, it's the moment where she talks Fred out of killing himself. And so she's failed her task and, and messed up this whole system. And then act three, uh, the end of the whole thing is that in doing all of this, that she's caused this butterfly effect with the world that is going to throw things out of whack. And the blame is coming down on the reapers that she was doing the favor for. Uh, so everyone's familiar with what those act breaks are. What were your thoughts on those breaks, Alex? Yeah, I feel like even though I appreciate that you've been uh, uh, working on those act outs, I feel like they're still a bit uh, passive, especially mm -hmm. if you look at something like the first act where you have Mo hearing people yell. Uh, I didn't feel that was very active as an act out. The seminar itself could be the act out. You have a lot of content at the top of the second act that could uh, be a better act out. For example, Mo being called on stage or Mo interacting with Jane mm. or more in interacting with Tina, some, some sort of a more active uh, obstacle than her hearing people yell. Yeah, that was my thought as well. I think that you could just end it as she walks in and, you know, the spotlight ends up on her or, you know, this kind of thing happens. It's something more active that involves Mo rather than just kind of, oh, here's a thing. And then the act ends and we come back from the act break. I think every act break, you really want it to surprise you or shock you or be like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? And I think that just kind of tweaking that that point a little bit into seeing our first glimpse of the seminar and how intense it is and the fact that Mo's going to get caught up in it, um, I think would be a good way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this uh, ties into some something else uh, we did want to mention, which is, I mean, personally, I feel like the first act is a little bit thin compared to the second act. I think you have a lot of meat in the second act that you can pull up, uh, especially around that act out moment. Mm. Uh, uh, when you look at this huge uh, sequence in the event room uh, between, you know, you have like Jane, Tina, Mo on stage, all these different interactions. I think if you break that up, tease a little bit more uh, of that at the end of the first act and that sort of building the world that uh, the episode is going to be about, uh, I think will make the first act stronger. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I thought that act three was also a little bit thinner than the other acts and was really just kind of dealing with the consequences of everything that happened in act two. So maybe you, you can play around with kind of moving where the acts break and where the action kind of finishes itself off. I mean, that said, the, the current act two break, I do like. I think that it is an active choice by Mo to interfere with, with Fred's thing and she messes everything up and it's this kind of moment of like, oh my God, what has she done? So I think that that is an example of a strong act break in, in my mind, at least. What did you think, Alex? On paper, it's a strong act out in terms of Mo's actions 
having consequences, like you said, and especially having established the timer. And I have a lot of questions about the timer, but as the, the Chekhov's gun of it, where you set up the timer as this is a deterministic outcome and Mo's actions changing that at the end of act two, I think that's a very uh, strong statement. And then as for act three, I mean, maybe we can discuss this more later, but uh, in terms of the ending, I, I do like, again, that Mo's actions have had this big consequence on the world and that it lends itself to an ongoing series and what's going to happen next. However, it felt like it was a little less personal or intense than the previous version, especially for Mo. You know, all of the action, the threat uh, of what's happened is now on this other Reaper and that Reaper's face comes up and Mo kind of gets off scot-free. So I'd almost like to see Mo in more mm. immediate danger or trouble. I absolutely concur. I had the exact same thought in terms of personally, I prefer the original end, which made it much more uh, personal and directly linked to Mo than this more abstract and uh, general chain reaction. I think the scene itself is good. I think those are interesting stakes moving forward in terms of the world. But as an episode out, especially a pilot episode out, I feel like I would want more of an end uh, or cliffhanger or some kind of uh, emotional moment towards Mo specifically. Yeah. And I think you had that in, in, the, in the previous draft. I think it was something about the, the neighbor uh, killing someone and sort of that being the chain reaction. I think that's a very powerful statement to end the episode on. Yeah, I think it was one of the other Reapers having to kill an innocent person to replace the, the death that wasn't taken. And then Mo kind of standing there watching someone be murdered and having that on yeah. her hands. And I thought that was a, yeah. a great kind of reaction. You know, whether, you know, you can still have that or not is another question. But just that kind of feeling, I think, is what you want at the end of this. Totally. That makes sense. Yeah, because it kind of ends on... The friend, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And the, the, what you said about um, having a stronger act out, I love, I love that idea of like having it, just moving it up, basically, or moving it back um, so that it's she's actually in the seminar and yeah, there's the sense that she's been thrown into a new world. That makes a lot more sense to me than where it currently ends now, where she's just on the cusp of entering. So yeah, yeah. usually those act one breaks are someone taking some sort of action or choice right. that pushes them into that new world. So it's her walking through the doors into the yeah. seminar. Yeah. So it feels like you just came like out just a little too early. Later. Yeah. 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 To that point of uh, someone murdering someone else, I did have a question about sort of the tone of the show, especially with Mo yeah. considering uh, murdering someone. It's, it's very Barry-esque, but I feel like that's very different from something like uh, The Good Place, which is much more optimistic and, and positive. Yeah. Um, so I am wondering where you're envisioning the show living uh, yeah totally yeah totally i think when i first came in and started talking about it i was thinking barry in terms of the tone and that's why i feel like that first beachy that had this really dark end where this guy essentially just murders this innocent person going into the outline i kind of changed i started watching this show called miracle workers have you seen that it's like a simon rich show i really love simon rich i've heard about it yeah it's on yeah. tbs yeah yeah tbs yeah. Uh, also love his show man seeking woman it's kind yeah, of like absurdist yep. yeah, yeah it's, it's like really absurdist but like emotionally grounded and that kind of resonated with me. And it, with this outline, I've kind of taken it more in that direction. I think feel like especially with that ending scene where things are kind of like going crazy and we're getting a glimpse. And also like when she goes into the offices and we see like some angels and stuff like that, it's a little more absurd and a little bit less grounded than when I had in mind when I first came in where I was envisioning more Barry. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I'm at now. Um, I also made a tweak to the character that I think fits a little bit more in that kind of world, like the miracle workers kind of tone, which is, yeah, I think like TBS. So, oh, so, yeah. so to that point, is is the goal of those sort of the horrific moments to be 
overplayed and kind of absurd and how ridiculous, sort of like almost like a Coen Brothers-esque uh, absurd moment of how crazy it is? Or is it much more grounded uh, in terms of like Barry? Barry is very grounded yeah. when when violence happens. Yeah, it's I very think, much uh, based on that. I think what I'm thinking now is it's going to tend more to the absurd. So I'm thinking of even amping up the cold open. So right now this guy like falls off the building, but I'm thinking like, what if he falls off and gets like ridiculously impaled on something, you know, <laughs> something that's just like way over the top. And maybe like that's a theme, like whenever someone dies, it's in some kind of like ridiculous way, you know, like. I, I do like that idea. I will say moving forward to the draft uh, for a second, that's definitely something to look out for in the prose to emphasize sort of the yeah. absurdity of it. Just reading, and I know this is just an outline, but just reading it black on white uh, and these events unfolding, it, it does uh, tread that line of how serious is it, how mm-hmm. uh, ridiculous it is. So I do like the, what you're going for, but I would try to emphasize that in the prose and uh, the draft. Totally. What, what was your impression when you were reading it? Were you feeling feeling like it was a little more Barry kind of tone or did it feel a little more the outline is a little bit more abstract in yeah. that way so it was hard to like get kind a vibe tough, however tough, tough. I mean personally I did feel like it was a little bit still on the very end of this is uh she's considering killing this guy and I didn't think it was being played as much of a for a laugh especially because like she's the one struggling with genuine emotional change uh, where she is. And I think that ties to something else we can go into. I know we're sort of sidetracking there, but I did have a lot of uh, comments about Mo's emotional journey, which is a different question, but where she was uh, throughout the episode, I was a little bit struggling to follow her decision-making into being willing to kill someone. Um, But that's a different issue. Yeah, no, I think either tone is a totally valid choice. It's just a matter of making sure it's exceptionally clear on the page. And, And a lot of that, it will come in the draft too it's it's hard to communicate that sometimes through these outlines and things but you know if you're if you're going barry lean into barry if you're going miracle worker is a good place that kind of thing lean into that i will just say i guess that if you are going for the more absurd then i think we still need to understand the consequences and the stakes of what can happen here because if everything is played off for laughs and all the the death and violence is humorous then what does mo actually have to lose here and i think making sure you keep that in mind if we're pushing it towards the more humorous end of things whereas the the more of the baritone you inherently understand that the life and death is serious and and that kind of thing i think you do have the scenes there personally the two most pivotal scenes emotionally in the pilot were mo on stage and mo on the roof at the the end of the the second act those are the sort of two pivotal emotional scenes and tying back to what i said uh, a second ago about mo's emotional journey i wanted more understanding and, and more subtle turns i guess in terms of mo so for example when mo is on stage i do like the fact that tina reaches mo in that moment but i did want there to be a middle ground in the sense of I don't think Mo would turn that fast on a dime. I feel like mm-hmm. the where she is emotionally in that moment, the positive reaction of the crowd is much more what is going to be the trigger for her to understand. Oh, I'm finally accepted. I'm at home. So I kind of wanted more of a. I don't know if it's antagonistic as much as it is Mo justifying herself, sort of Tina pushing Mo metaphorically, and Mo pushing back, being like, actually, and this and this and that, mm. bearing her heart out and not expecting anything in return but then when the crowd applauds and people are loving what she's saying that's when she realizes oh i'm finally home this is where i belong as opposed to 
act one where we're setting up the fact that she's all alone. That's the the emotion I wanted more of that scene. And then the second beat on the roof, I feel like that was a, a really strong scene. But again, I feel like that's where you have the opportunity to heighten the emotion of Mo and that connection to Fred and Fred Stern. And I think that's where, uh, to Nick's point about sort of grounding the stakes and, and the realism of it, even though there's absurdity going around it, I think that's something Barry does. And I know we, uh, you, you're not going for Barry, Jordan, but I'm saying like Barry does a great thing of merging the very serious Breaking Bad-esque uh, thriller aspect to the absurd uh, comedy of, uh, you know, breaking in as an actor in Alley. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, Alex. I like what you're saying in terms of her finding this acceptance from the crowd and stuff. And I think you could even potentially heighten that by showing more how she like isn't accepted or is kind of like shunned in the reaper world when she mm-hmm. goes into this the office and that kind of thing you know going back to one of the things that steve troutman emailed us uh, a while back in terms of are there differentiations in in the class and now you have that with reapers and angels and things like that so highlighting that and seeing how are reapers treated are they the the scum who go and do like the basic work and the angels are the really fancy people you know that kind of thing like what are yeah. the social dynamics of that world and and fleshing that out i think will help us understand her she doesn't really feel like she has a place in this world but she She's being accepted in this new one. I absolutely agree with everything you just said. I feel like act one is where you need to establish that status quo of her being alone. Because in the, in the second act, you have that scene in the, the bowling alley. And then the pros, you see a version of Moe's finally with people she likes, or she's finally accepted with her family. And I wanted a version of that scene in the first act. You have a scene at the bar with Moe's friend. I don't think that's really the, the mirror version of that scene. I think there's a better mirror version of the scene you can do. And uh, I like your suggestion, Nick, of perhaps that's in the Reaper world. There's, there's something there about how she's being, I don't know if it's bullied or rejected or alone, and you can emphasize sort of the before and the after in that sense. Right. Reapers have to come in the back entrance through the alley and crawl through the tunnel or whatever instead of the nice, you know, <laughs> painted footway or, you know, that kind of thing. Any thoughts or comments on any of that, Paul? Yeah, I love the idea of trying to emphasize Moe's lowly stature in the sort of underworld hierarchy. That's definitely what I'm going for. Because I had this scene where she, yeah, she goes up and like where, where all the Reapers hang out, like this kind of dingy 1950s dispatch center. And then she takes the elevator up and now we're suddenly in like Google headquarters and all fancy. And so, I, yeah, I definitely want to like with the next pass, like hit that harder and make it clear the discrepancy in, in the um, sort of status. I think between angels and Reapers in general. But I think what for me and I would love to hear it, to what extent this comes across Mo's emotional state in Act One is really that, like, she is of this lowly stature as a Reaper in relation to the angels, and she wants to be an angel. And mm-hmm. so she she feels like she's finally earned this promotion to get promoted. And then she goes up there and she's just kind of like slapped down and rejected really brutally. And then so she feels like she's, you know, kind of has, has nothing. So that's what I was going for. Would love to hear, like, whether that was coming across or, yeah, I certainly was landing. I like the way that you have distinguished the two worlds. And I think that that does demonstrate the kind of the value of the Reapers compared to the angels, but even just from the, the side character angels and stuff, you know, I'd like to see them kind of uh, waving away these, you know, like just the, their reactions to what are the social dynamics of this world in terms of the promotion, the angel thing and her talking to mother time. Yeah, that was interesting. I thought that I, I like her aspiration and that, you know, she's going for something and, and get smacked down. But I also feel like it kind of takes away any ability to use that device if she's instantly told, oh, no, that was just a joke that I said in passing. So it's like, oh, I really want to be this angel. Oh, that's not real. Then that kind of like ends that story device. And I know that that pushes her towards, well, I can be my own version of an angel in this program by helping people and whatever. But I, I wonder if that that eliminates maybe one of her like ongoing goals. Could you draw that out longer? And she thinks oh. that she's 
always going to be an, an angel until the, the moment where mother time reveals that that's not how it works, you know, further down. The th- Obviously, you don't like, I'll save it for later because you only have your pilot to use that in. I just felt like even maybe at the end of the episode, you could find out that being an angel is not, you know, that's not how it works rather than just right off the top. I feel like it might be underutilized potentially. This may be a more tragic take, but uh, this is more a benevolent Mother Time, but she didn't think that Mother Time would ever promote her. And then we realized that Mother Time was, you know, one day away from promoting her and all the action she did in this episode after her promotion. Oh, yeah. um, but okay. either way, to, to answer your earlier question, uh, personally, I wanted a lot bit more understanding of what that promotion would mean uh, beyond your social capital, uh, because you also talk about things like healthcare. So that's a little bit confusing to me in yeah, terms of like yeah. what does that mean for a reaper like what are the logistics of living if you if you're leaning into the fact that essentially she's living this normal life like anybody else then i want more understanding of that the fact that she's just a normal person with normal needs like healthcare, or if it's more like magical healthcare and there's something to yeah. that um, because then it introduces again questions that whether or not we want to ask them is up to you. But I feel like if you are introducing those questions, then you need to like answer them in totally. pilot or remove them entirely. And that's not an issue at all. I feel like that's the one thing that was missing in terms of the differentiation was just what it means for Mo specifically. And so getting a, a pat from Adam Scott from uh, The Good Place when he's like the this dickish uh, right. person from male. Anyway. Just going off of what you were saying, Alex, I, the thing that I liked about you know the previous version of what Mo was going for and her whole thing was that it felt very in line with this theme of life and death. You know, I think that she wanted to kind of escape her existence and she would finally get to retire and whatever that was, you know, you know, avoid purgatory, that kind of thing. So I guess I just want to know with this whole new angel aspect and promotion and whatever, like, how does that tie into the theme of the show and all of this idea? And so what does Mo actually want and what is Mo afraid of? So a couple things. Firstly, yeah, I, I feel like I should definitely lose that line about like wages and healthcare because that's essentially just like a throw. What I was going for was to make like a Uber, an Uber joke, like right. about, you know, how like, you know, the Uber drivers were striking and they're, they're like contractors and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. it's not totally not worth it. I think, I feel like it raises all these kind of world building questions that I don't necessarily want to be getting into. I think more in terms of what the stakes are for Mo, I think the distinction that she feels between angels and reapers is that like reapers are just, you know, they don't, they're not making an impact. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about taking away her power to take away lives. She just gets told what to do and then she just does it. She just picks up this person here, drops them off there and just repeat 10 million times. Whereas angels, I think they kind of make an impact on people's lives. Like I try to introduce this idea that like heaven and the underworld is kind of like this corporation and what they're trying to do is like influence people to do good things. So like there, we see this angel given this presentation and I forget how, how, it, how I executed it, but it was... Yeah, I remember like, that. That was good. I, I liked that. He, that he, he's it. talking about this, like, campaign, like, our latest campaign. Oh, like, good, you know, human goodness increased by 4% and hugging increased by, like, 10% or yeah. whatever it is, right? <laughs> so there's this idea that, like, angels have this purpose and are able to affect human life to, like, increase the level of, like, goodness in the world. And that's, like, the end towards which all these angels are working. And so Mo, as a lowly reaper, sees that and she's like, oh, like... I want to be able to make that kind of impact. And so when she gets slapped down, she's like, oh, crap, I'm just going to be like stuck here at the bottom, like treading water, kind of stuck at the bottom forever. And to Nick, to your question about like how that ties into the theme, this idea of like wanting to make an impact is what draws her ultimately into the motivational program because she feels like, oh, this is a way that I can impact people's lives. You know, without being an angel, I can still be a reaper, but maybe I can you know, improve myself and improve like those around me. I think that's the link that I'm trying to draw. I think it's not sketched out 
clearly enough right now, but that's what I'm shooting for. Yeah, I mean, I do really like those themes. I, I will say, in terms of what you just mentioned about people uh, on the on the angel side, I feel there may be a little bit of confusion in terms of Mo wants to do good and be an angel. However, the angels are basically dicks. And I feel like that's yeah, where yeah. the the confusion, at least on my end, yeah. uh, happens is if you're going to work hard all this way to make a difference, and the way to make a difference is to become a dick. I mean, I, I feel like there's a little bit of, of that sense where I'm not and the, obviously literally they're helping people have the hugs and, and whatever but i'm just saying in terms of the personality the way you're representing yeah. these people it's basically the one percent versus the 99 percent. that's the way you're going after of like mo is basically garbage men pushing the cart and then the one percent or like the elite right, it's um, like upper management versus you know middle management exactly and, and, I, I, and i do really like what you just said about how she's finding that validation of making a difference through the seminar and, and through those people. But I, I did want more of that idea, maybe front loaded in the sense of like, oh, that like, that's why she wants to do what she wants mm, to do. Yeah. And then the fact that, oh, the answer is the seminar. And I think the solutions are everything we've been discussing in terms of the moment of Mo on stage and all these different emotional moments where you can sort of track her journey and, and tying that to the theme of the show. Yeah, I, I do really like that theme in terms of like going from a place of having no agency and really no ability to make an impact on the world at all to how can I actually make change? and affect people's lives and, and go from this position. And so like Alex was saying, I think we could see more of her wanting to do that early on, like even when her ride with this guy in the cold open, maybe mm. she's trying to offer him mints and you know, whatever and like right, things like right. that to just to try and make his ride a little bit nicer and then it doesn't matter because he's just going to hell anyway. And it's like I'm doing this every single day, <laughs> right, right? you know, and I'm not making any sort of change at all. I think it's very relatable for a lot of people in those kind of jobs. And so, yeah, then, yeah, I think that that, that is a strong thematic through line and just making sure you're playing everything to that notion uh, throughout is good. Okay, yeah, that's super helpful. Let's move into questions about the world and logic and so forth. Do you have anything about that, Nick? Yeah, just like tiny little things that I guess I had questions about when they came up. So reapers, as you've established, can be seen by the, the ghosts that people who just died and the humans, but then the humans can't see the ghosts, obviously. So I was curious if, if again, if you're going to use that as a device, are we going to use that in some way? Do we get a beat of people calling out, Mo, who are you talking to? Is this causing complications and obstacles for her? Things like that. Yeah, I... I th- I think so. I was thinking about that. I think, yeah, it could, it could just be as simple as like, who the hell, like, why are you, why are you talking to this? Mm-hmm. Like, why, who are you talking to right now? And essentially, yeah, because like Mo is just like talking like crazy person. Or I was thinking it could be understood that Mo as like this otherworldly thing can communicate with people and also with the undead, but like to normal people, like they just don't notice. I'm wondering if, if I don't ask that question, whether it'll be Right. It's raise going, that going out of your way it. to explain it. Yeah, it, it, it does that draw. Yeah, exactly. If I go out of my way to explain this thing, does that just draw an attention to it? And is that necessary? I was thinking about that. I, I feel like I'll just have to see how it goes in the draft. Do you yeah. guys have thoughts about I mean, that? I mean, personally, I actually have the exact same note as Nick. Yeah. So I will say that by the very definition of that scene existing, you are introducing questions. I actually had a follow-up question to that, which is, if he's a ghost, how can he vomit and impact the real-world environment? Oh, yeah. so there's a, and especially if you're a genre fan, those are immediate questions that you're going to yeah. be asking. And it's not good or bad. It's just something to keep in mind in terms of like how you want that world to be visualized and how you want those interactions to be. And you can make 
make up whatever you want. And it can just be something like if she talks to them, then from a third person perspective, she's just like an NPC not doing anything. <laughs> and she's, there's like a magical field or whatever right, that does right. that. It could just literally be one line of prose, but especially when Mo is arguing with the ghost and then you have a Rachel nearby yeah. sort of lamenting and, and mourning. I feel like there's, there's something there to be asked about, like, what is she seeing of like Mo talking to the ghost and why isn't there more happening right. there? And it could be as simple as her having to wear a little Bluetooth headset and be like, I'm sorry, I'm on the phone. You know, whatever it happens to be, like whatever her kind of like cover <laughs> for cover, it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that that's would be really actually funny, funny. That's it's really like that's funny, a running yeah. gag of how do they cover for talking yeah, every, to every person you've ever met on a bluetooth headset is talking to a dead person <laughs> <laughs> that's great uh so in terms of this kind of like big butterfly effect thing at the ending where you know and i do like this idea that by doing this suddenly 20 children are going to die and this and that and it's going to cause all these bad things and indeed it's the exact opposite of what the angels are trying to achieve and what mo herself would like to achieve i guess my question in terms of this is this the first time that a death has ever been avoided is this some crazy thing and they don't know what's going on has this happened before and they have a special swat team that goes and deals with it like what whether or not it's actually on the page i'm just curious about this whole thing and and this change to the world yeah I, I, and I feel like I definitely need to convey this more. Uh, I feel like it doesn't come across right now. But yeah, basically, this is the first time that a Reaper has like averted a death. So it's a surprise both to Mo, but it's a, it's sort of a monkey wrench in the whole cosmic like Rube Goldberg type system. And it's the first time that it's happened. I feel like that isn't maybe not coming across right now. Yeah, right now it feels like they're kind of like... Uh, they've got their graphics prepared and this whole thing is like, oh, it's happening again. So I think that maybe okay. na nailing uh, that that idea that this is the first time it's ever happened and they're all bewildered and like, what the hell is this? And like, oh no, there's all these failures in this system. Like what's going on mm -hmm. kind of thing. Do, do you think I should set up this idea that like, because I feel like I set it up in dialogue kind of, I kind of sprinkle out this idea of like, oh no, yeah, like make sure you, because like the Reapers, they're not meant to like intervene and talk to anyone. They're just meant to, and again, going back to their lowly status, they're just meant to show up don't say anything, pick them up, drop them off. Yeah. yeah. If, if I should set up this idea that like, yeah, you know, don't talk to anyone specifically because if you do, you know, it's going to throw everything out of whack. And then so when she does talk to someone, we're immediately clued in of like, oh, she's doing something she's not supposed to maybe. Yeah. It's like the time travel thing. If you yeah. go back and you you change something, then everything's going to happen. So like, yeah, maybe the rule is that they have to stay in their car until the death has happened and then go out and get them or whatever happens. Like you said, just right. don't talk to them and don't do anything. I think setting up the threat of that is a good way to pay it off at the mm. end for sure. Yeah, I feel like either way could work. If it is something that's never been done before, then I would want some comment from Mother Time. And it could just be like, oh my God, this hasn't happened since Cain or whatever. Yeah. A reference like biblical time and right, that ties right. it up. And then you realize how long this has never been done. Right. And just understanding sort of the the world. I feel like that's that's more on the, obviously the draft side but i think there's right. definitely yeah. a movement there. it's basically just setting up that like oh this is a huge deal right yeah, yeah. okay and you could even see a visualization in the angel office of the rube goldberg machine of it all and all the little like points of light and things like that that are working in exact harmony and everything's like clockwork and then suddenly later on when we see that again and things are messed up it's like oh god what's happening you know mm, yeah yeah 
I had uh, a couple of questions in terms of the timer aspect and mm -hmm. the clock. I do like the idea of her knowing someone is going to die with a clock. I think that's a very visual and very interesting. So first of all, I would want more uh, emotion, especially from an audience's perspective. I think that there's definitely room there to play with people's expectations, which is a dirty word uh, post Game of Thrones, but I'm still going to say it. You can subvert <laughs> people's expectations in terms of she's entering this room and you know one of those people is going to die. This is a small thing, but I just think it could add a layer to the whole thing. Uh, in terms of the logic, I did have a question about how in the teaser she can just show up on the roof essentially five seconds before someone dies. However, for the Fred uh, aspect, she needs to be there hours and hours and hours early to sort of scope it out. I, I didn't quite understand sort of the difference there, why one was more rushed, why she can yeah. just show up at one point and can take her time uh, this other time. I don't know yeah, if you have so an answer to that. Totally. I, to, to be honest, I don't really have an answer. That's something that I did struggle with because, yeah, the way that I'm envisioning it working is that yeah, she basically gets a ding on her phone and, and you know, we get the picture of the person who's dying. And then we have this countdown timer that's counting down. So, yeah, it doesn't make – I was trying to figure out, like, why she would turn up so early. And I played – I had a version where I kind of explained that by, like, you know, because she gets passive for promotion, she goes out and, like, is kind of, like – really pissed off in her car and she's like pounding the steering wheel and then crashes her car and her car gets towed and so the next day the only way she can get to the seminar is to take a train and there's only two like i had some kind of like thing but i kind of scrapped it i, I think you can flip could just be a thing in a teaser where yeah. she like overslept or whatever and that's just like the reason why usually she's there hours early but this one time she was there super late oh okay. i think that's more and that way you don't have to add a complex reason and why <laughs> she needs to be there and the bump was more why is she there five seconds early and hours early the next time and I think you can reverse engineer that idea. I'm also curious what happens if she doesn't make it there on time. Is Does the soul just stand there until she arrives? Or does it wander off and get lost and become a ghost or whatever? You yeah. know, what, what is the importance of being there right on time when it happens? Is it just, you know, for, well, that's when they died. And so you get them. But like, is there a consequence for not picking them up? That kind of thing, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I also had a version where like, it was a similar thing of where she crashes her car. And that one, I think she was actually like, maybe drinking or something like that and and she gets arrested she gets like taken to the police station and, the, and then the soul like runs away and she has to go get the soul later it was a different iteration where like that's the reason why she gets in trouble um that was before i kind of like scrapped change her motivation but yeah i think if if they don't pick up the soul it just can kind of like run amok and i think what the soul does it kind of depends on that person it's like some people might just go back to their like favorite place where they can watch their favorite sunset. Maybe someone's like, oh crap, I'm going to go haunt my like enemy right now. You know, mm -hmm. I think it just depends on that person. But the important thing for the Reaper is that they're there so that that doesn't happen. They right. can just like usher them away quickly and you don't want to like lose it. All right. So now that we've covered some of the big picture stuff, were there any minor, you know, micro notes you had, Alex, on scenes or execution or certain things? Yeah. I mean, those are uh, mostly specific notes to watch out for, for the draft version. Obviously the, the outline is a little bit more abstract and not necessarily as detailed uh, and things are going to obviously change. But the one thing I do want to mention is be aware of the need for people to explain things that we're visually seeing. And uh, I mentioned this specifically for the ending, which may... Uh, obviously changed now, but at some point you have that sort of big map and the, the butterfly effect. And then the text is the Reaper officer explaining what we're seeing. So that's just like one small thing to uh, watch out for moving forward. And I, I know there's a, a couple other elements before that sort of echoed the, that note, but. So you're saying there's too much 
exposition of what we can already see or what correct yeah that would be the one thing to watch out for but again this is like an outline so i don't know how relevant it's going to be moving forward but it's just one thing to watch out for this part of it that we need to hear but the other part is like seen right before in the prose i think there's like a middle ground there right. of explaining what is going on but without describing what we're seeing i think that's the difference yeah i mean obviously in an outline sometimes it's better yeah. to hit people over the head with it but it's you know it's good to know for the draft and, and also i guess stuff that the audience has already seen in previous scenes and then other people talking about what has just happened you know we don't want to feed it to the audience multiple times so you can find shortcuts and ways around that but. exactly any final thoughts paul on uh, anything that we've talked about or any questions yeah this is super helpful yeah I, I i a lot of what you said really resonates with me and and uh yeah i'm excited to go back and try and figure figure some of this stuff i feel like you guys hit on a lot of the things that i was kind of turning over my head and wanted to think more about. Um, so yeah, that's, that's cool. Great. That's great. And uh, what about your next step, Paul? What do you think uh, you're working on next? Yeah, I think I'll probably um, firstly go in and maybe tweak the outline, but then yeah, get into that first draft and try and just bust out like a vomit draft or something pretty rough to just get something uh, on the page. Sounds good. And that'll be in about a month, probably around mid July, 2019. All right. And before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Uh, as mentioned, you can get even more behind the scenes access to this mentorship process, plus other exclusive content like cheat sheets and other great stuff. And we can also keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And thank you to Paul for your hard work. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode, mainly the outline from Mid-Death Crisis at paperteam.co slash 138. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And Paul? My uh, Twitter is at Paul Poise. That's poor Poise with a Paul. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, what are we doing next week? We are going to be going through a list of TV writing craft resources, all of the books, apps, podcasts, whatever, you know, physical tools that we use to help us write and uh, hopefully can help you as well. Yeah, it's going to be a jam-packed episode, essentially going over kind of everything we've mentioned over 130 episodes. Uh, it's mm -hmm. going to be pretty extensive. Uh, so tune in for that next week. All right. See you then. See you then.